Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Neil, welcome to Next Economy Now. Thanks, Sean. Great to be on. Great to have you. Neil, I'd love to start just by hearing your background, where you came from, and how you got into this great work that you're doing. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Well, there's a long story, and then there's a short story. The, the short story is I'm kind of a corporate refugee who had a moment of Satori on a business trip and decided to change everything and even like, you know, rebook my flight and come directly home from Europe. And, and, uh, and the main insight that I had was that I, I sort of reflected on all of my struggles and, and challenges in life and realized that uh, I had been doing life alone, a kind of solo performance. And it was not only ineffective, but it was boring and very lonely. And that I wanted to do things in a completely different way and make sharing a real core principle of everything that I would do and try to create a life and world for myself and others where it was easy to find love, meaningful work, great conversations, and go on a adventure with people I love to do something important and meaningful and become alive. You know, that was, you know, I I was, I was, you know, kind of mid-career and felt like my life hadn't even started. So anyways, I hit the eject button and started almost from scratch in San Francisco in around 2004. Okay. And just started building a community around, you know, finding the others and building a community around the idea. And one thing led to another and I started shareable in 2009. And I went from being the kind of sharing guy in San Francisco to being known wider with shareable also as being a kind of part of a community that's really focused on sharing and also voicing it as a powerful strategy and a relevant strategy for now. So I'm assuming it it, it must have, um, it must have worked for you. You you know, having this epiphany, (laughs) wait a minute, maybe there's a different way. I mean, I'm curious how those, how those early days worked out, you know, was your epiphany based on seeing somebody else or other people being more engaged or interactive or was, you know, was that a real leap of faith? I mean, it's a little there bit crazy a- to jump out and, you know, from the, the mainstream culture and, and go for, yeah. for sharing and. Yeah, there was kind of a long gradual lead up and the intellectual foundation was there. Like I had done the reading, I was doing strategy work for a fortune 50 transportation company. I understood the global context mm. and I, kind of a, a industry strategist by trade. So and analyzing things, you know, came naturally to me and then coming up with plans based on that. Okay. Um, and so the intellectual foundation was there. And on this business trip, the other shoe dropped. And that was the kind of spiritual and emotional piece, which is really what generated the commitment because I had the knowledge mm. and I hadn't made the choice, right? But then when I had the insight, this kind of at a spiritual level, for lack of really a better word, I mean, it really did feel like something was flowing through me that not of me, just a, a vehicle. And it's like, wow, I really see something now. I'm being shown something mm. and I cannot ignore it. I have to act. And, and that's why, you know, I punched out. So, you know, kind of dramatically, like I left like the next day, you know, I got wow. on a plane and, you know, letter of resignation, like right after I had that moment and boom, I was out of there. Were you scared? You know, uh, no, I wasn't, I wasn't scared and maybe that's foolish, you know, but, but uh, part of the reason I was scared is because I've always lived a kind of frugal life. And so I didn't have a lot of huge expenses or debt mm. and, um, you know, and, and I am, you know, privileged. So I had 
I also could act on this. But what explained the lack of fear more than anything is that moment was a relief because it was the first time that I felt like I was really committed to something. And, and this was a feeling I had never had before. And it was, it was really an existential kind of torture to like not know why am I here? You know, and my career was a sort of, you know, actually earlier in my life had, I had um, kind of said like, man, I can't figure it out right now. I, I just, you know, I'll go and I'll do some work. I'll learn some things. I'll put away some money. And I, I just, you know, I was at a loss, right? I didn't have the references or the connections or the knowledge to think my way out of it. So I had to, you know, just move forward and, and try to find a way. So thanks for sharing this. This is, uh, it's important because I think there's a lot of folks that are still in that circumstance, right? And, uh, you know, this is one of the things that we want to do at Lift Economies, invite them into the next realm. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear from you. So, that, you know, that's a little background on what you were feeling and experiencing before you made this shift. After you made this shift, what was the impact like for you, just, just for your quality of life? I mean, I want to get more. Yeah, you know, sure. We'll, we'll get deeper into more of some of the solution sets that you're, that you're into, which is yeah, of course. on the personal level. Yeah. How did it work out for your own quality of life on a day-to-day basis? Like, did people, is this sharing thing cool? Like, did you meet some nice folks? Did it work out? Man, it worked out. The bottom line is it really worked out. You know, I, I like to research things. I read a lot of books. And so I kind of understood some things, you know, and, and I also like to experiment. Like, so real life experiences mean a lot also. So it's like a way of learning that balances those two things. And, and so I, you know, I went on a kind of deeper dive on the research. I talked to as many people as I could. And then I started my own kind of sharing project, a, a salon. I started with some friends in 2005 called the Abundance League, which was a gift circle with a speaker and also a, a potluck in the middle. I remember um, hearing about Abundance League. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I did that with the community for five years. And that was really the thing that confirmed it all for me that the huge qualitative difference that sharing and collaboration made and being part of a community of purpose made. And, you know, the secret sauce of that gathering was the gift circle where everyone, you know, this is what we did at every meeting to kick it off is everyone shared three things, you know, what they were passionate about, what their needs were, and, and that could be related to their project or passion. And then also what they could offer the community in terms of, you know, connections or knowledge or help labor, you know, what have you. And then there would be a break and then everyone would just match up and exchange their, their gifts and, and, and needs, right? Or meet their gifts, their, meet their needs and so forth. And if you, you know, what was interesting, if you do that over time or regularly with a, a regular group of people, and there was a kind of regulars who would come over and over, also new people that would circulate in and out, then you create a network based on purpose. And when you help people and help each other with things that you're truly passionate about, that are really connected to your core purpose as a person, then you've made a very special bond. And also anything that you put in, it comes back like tenfold. It's not linear, you know? So it took like 18 months to get there. And then it was like, then it was a totally different way of getting things done. It seemed like I could get access to almost anything I needed through relationships. And my friends networked me I, I didn't have to network. They knew enough about my purpose that they moved me like a chess piece on this, you know, sort of larger social board, right? Or quantum board. And instead of, you know, 
fighting and competing and having sharp elbows to be successful and you know moving up some sort of ladder then it was it was more like my destiny was being pulled towards me i was like a, a, an attractor towards the for the resources i need to do to do my purpose to act you know and fulfill my purpose so it was just the mirror image of what it's like to work in a market economy I love that, especially, you know, from a business lens, you know, we're looking for efficiencies in the system. And, and then it turns out that being on purpose is the most efficient and effective thing that you can do, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is, yeah, like efficiency is definitely overrated. And, and also, you know, and I come from a strategic planning background, also planning is, has limitations there too. Because if you plan for a certain thing, you know, you might be cheating yourself of the 10x that's there. And not just uh, resources, but experience. And, and so be open to what can come beyond the plan. And purpose is really what gets you there. Purpose and, and, and also the, the community and the connections, the reciprocity, being there for people when they really need it on the things that are most important to them. Well, I'd like to connect it to, well, I mean, you shared your experience kind of making a, a decision to share. What have you seen just in popular trends in the last, 15 years are more people getting on with this is it is it particular to any part of the world are we are we here in america are we in the <laughs> backwaters of sharing <laughs> yeah here's some of your high level perspective on this yeah well I'll, I'll share a little bit about the genesis of shareable which kind of answers the question through abundance league i met uh a foundation that was interested in doing something around sharing. They asked me and, and also the company Free Range Graphics, Lewis Fox and Jonah Sachs. Yeah, um, I know those guys. You know, uh, yeah, they're great. And, and they got the, the call initially and they said, oh, we, we, could, we need to bring Neil in because I've been working on this and had a reputation of being knowledgeable about it. And so I helped them write the plan that we got the grant. And, you know, in the research though, the research question was, you know, how can we start a movement for sharing? And then, you know, when I did the research, I was like, oh, wow, you know, there is already a huge trend across almost every sector I could find towards sharing and collaboration, people reinventing how they do things out of necessity and up from choice, wanting to do things differently, um, have a different experience and different results. And our job wasn't necessarily to start a movement. It was to more witness it, connect the dots on it, and um, be a catalyst, right? and try to guide it as much as possible for a small, you know, relatively small nonprofit, you know, so that's why we kind of launched first with a sort of magazine to like start painting the picture and connecting those dots. Anytime, you know, there is a, an economic kind of crisis and we started, you know, right after the, the great recession, you have a surge in all kind of sort of people driven solidarity economics, right? In addition to that, that this go round though was, with the rise of social media, with the internet, with creative commons. This became an ethos of sharing transferred from net culture to the wider population. You know, that's a shift that we helped along and it's gone in some different directions, some good and some not so great. You know, the, the quote unquote sharing economy has gone off the rails and is kind of just, you know, business as usual and maybe even particularly aggressive form of it. At the same time, that idea of sharing as being something important has come into po the popular imagination. Can you say more about what's known now as the sharing economy and what might be the, the critique? Yeah, sure. When we started, you know, we painted this picture of all the different 
things that represented this sort of a sharing kind of transformation, a kind of epic sort of shift, right? You know, open source software and tool libraries and, you know, social media and the sharing economy, you know, cooperatives and all the things that uh, within the solidarity economy, open government and bike sharing and car sharing. And, you know, I could just go on, right? And anytime we would talk to the, the, uh, the press, we would paint this picture and they would only talk about the business piece. They would only talk about the startups, right? And the apps. It went from there to later, you know, a couple of years on, all the money started to flow in. So the, the company started to change and, and also the story started to change. It went from, you know, not this big palette of sharing innovations that we were writing, you know, going to just the startups. And then it went to just a couple of startups, um, you know, Airbnb, Lyft and Uber. Um, and they became the story and synonymous with the sharing economy. And as all that money flowed in, all of the communitarian sort of ethos and vibe and, and a lot of the purpose, frankly, was left by the wayside because, you know, venture capitalists are the, seek the highest returns of any other type of investor. And the pressure is tremendous for founders and management team to deliver on those expectations. And they, and the VCs are the most powerful stakeholder and they start to shape the company into not a service for the public or a service for its users, but as a commodity that can be sold in the global marketplace, that the company itself, they go through this process. Once they get all that cash, the VCs are looking for an exit and they turn the business into a commodity, which they can sell quickly. So they're looking for a flip. They're not looking to build a like necessarily build a legacy business that could happen in the long term, but that's not their that's not their interest. They're looking for a 10x or more return. And so a lot of the ethics go out the window. You know, Uber is a good example. I mean, really they have experienced a kind of ethical collapse that has impacted their future as a company and their ability for the investors to get an exit. And that's the reason why the CEO is out, right? It's not because of the ethics and rule breaking and law breaking and the fact to quote Harvard Business Review is that they said this. I mean, this is really striking for Harvard Business Review to say this. They called Uber an illegal enterprise, fundamentally illegal. And that's how we saw it, right? They just disregarded the rules and leveraged their capital and the sort of tech meme about progress, about you know the inevitability of changes and that they represented this and just steamrolled every everyone in their path right so the people who really pay the, the price for this are the workers the contractors and and the hosts they are subject to exploitation and will have a lot of control over their work environment the terms change constantly they're you know managed algorithmically so if you get a bad rating or x number of bad ratings you're out of there you have you know if you're on their app uber and you've refused so many rides that they, they ding you so you have to keep driving and they you know treat you as an employee yet the legal relationship is or the relationship they want to have is a contractor and this was the where they got in the most trouble legally at least in terms of the, the size of the fines they were fined like a hundred million dollars or there's a settlement a labor uh, misclassification settlement of around a uh, hundred million dollars i think california and math in, in massachusetts so this is this is the critique well, let's talk about the solutions. Yeah. What are you seeing that's most exciting to you? What's emerging now that really embodies the principles that we want to see? Yeah, so to connect directly with the, the problem with this, this enterprise and what could be the antidote is 
a movement that we helped catalyze in 2015. We wrote a, we hired Nathan Schneider to write a feature story about a new class of startups emerging that brought together or married cooperative business structure with a platform approach to the market. And so now it's a move two years later, it's a movement, there's an annual conference, there's the platform co-op consortium and a group of companies that are cooperating and more coming on board. An example of that is there's a couple of good ones. Like there's, there's Green Taxi in, in Denver, which has ride hailing. It's a newer co-op, but it's 800 member worker cooperative where the drivers wow. own and control the business. Wow. Um, and so you get the best of both worlds, you know, uh, a well-paid, motivated workforce um, that controls their working conditions and wages and the convenience of ride hailing, right, through the smartphone. You have Stocks United, which is a, a stock photo marketplace online where the photographers are the worker owners. And there's about 900 worker owners in that. They do, um, last year they did over $10 million in revenue. You go to their site and look at it and it, it's beautiful. So this is a successful business generating revenue online, treating the workers right, making a profit or returning profit to, to members already and only being a few years old. So those are two good examples of what's possible that there is enough. Now that's the, I think that that's part the deeper message is that there is not just one way to do startups, okay? That there are multiple ways and multiple patterns and the platform co-op is yet another option. And, and then the other thing I want to talk about, we, we can get deeper into this, but just I want to bring it, bring it to the fore now is it's not just about the structure of the individual enterprises. It's about the ecosystem. Hmm. Say, say more about that. Yeah. So, so the platform co-ops, that's a great development yet, unless there is a supportive network of institutions, finance, legal, regulatory, right. awareness, culture, media, then it's not going to work, right? Or it will struggle to scale, right? And you have to think about capitalism and all the institutions that had built up over hundreds of years, all the innovations, the laws, you know, the, the corporation as we know it now is, is something that has evolved legally right. over a couple of hundred years, right? Especially since the Civil War, you know, have they gained so, so much power and so many rights, this is how we have to think about getting a economy that works for people and planet is we, we need that, we need that ecosystem. And, you know, I live in Silicon Valley and there is an incredible ecosystem to create highly exploitative companies, right? They do it better than anyone, right? It's like amazing. They're so good at it. It's like a factory for exploitative companies, you know, but there is also a kind of mirror image of this in places like Emilia Romano, a region in sort of central Italy, Bologna is in the, the capital, the major city, where 30% of the economy is cooperative. Something like 70 or 80% of residents are members of a cooperative. But underneath that is an incredible set of financial institutions, laws and regulations that make it work and institutionalize it, make it stable and viable over the long term and contribute substantially to like raising the standard of living and building a middle class. And there's a lot of communities and cities who want to be the next Silicon Valley, you know, and it's like, oh no, don't do that. You know, that's not, don't do that because that will be terrible for your residents. You know, it'll be great for a few business people, but overall for the community could get completely hollowed out. Like it has where I live, where, 
We've got RV communities. Okay, so there's Stanford University. It's right along El Camino, which is the, one of the main drags on the peninsula. Yep. And there is like a mile and a half long line parked along El Camino next to Stanford of broken down RVs of people who can't afford housing. Wow. You know? Yeah, East, East Palo Alto, right? It's one of the, the poorer communities in the Bay. Yeah, but this is right. Yeah, that's true. And this is right next to Stanford, though. Oh, this, yeah. <laughs> this is like right in the middle of Palo Alto. And then where I am in Mountain View, there's one of the bigger parks is Rangsdorf Park. And they have the same thing along the railroad tracks on the east side of the park is the same thing is the RV camp. And this people living there, they've got their generators going, they got their barbecue grills out and their chairs out and all this stuff. So the housing situation has gotten so out of control. There's 10,000 homeless people in Silicon Valley. There's about 6,000 in, in San Francisco. There's 80 tent communities and uh, tent camps in, in San Francisco. The other thing is, is that, you know, get worse, right? Yeah, it's getting worse and worse. I mean, also you have this, you have this exodus. So you've got people of color and artists and activists and, and um, community spaces and art galleries and bookstores, like they're gone, you know? And, you know, the thing that made San Francisco great that attracted people in the first place has now been, you know, kind of figuratively speaking, paved over. So are we seeing any of this type of ecosystemic support uh, that you're identifying is critical? Uh, Are we seeing any of this in the United States? Yeah, more and more cities are adopting, and it's in our book, and, and our, uh, we've got a, a review copy out of Sharing Cities, Activating the Urban Commons. What's um, the, what's, this, is your, this is your new book? Yeah, this is the book that Sharable and all our fellows put together. We worked 18 months on it and collected examples of model policies and case studies from all over the world of a kind of people-driven economy for cities, you know, that builds social capital and builds the community up as opposed to kind of hollowing it out. And we are offering it as a kind of antidote, like, no, don't do the, don't be the Silicon Valley of X, be the next, you know, Mondragon, be the next Emilia Romano region. You know, there's another example to follow. And so you see cities like New York City and a few others like adopting policies that support the development of cooperatives. It's great and also not nearly at the scale that we see in these more established regions, but it's a start and it could get there. But what it, it requires people to get involved and um, guide the policy discussion in a certain direction and get off of this like Silicon Valley dream. You know, it's not a, a miracle. It's a cautionary tale. So let's hear more about the book. How's it structured? What's inside the book? I would describe it as um, a kind of catalog of hope. It represents a concrete utopia. It means that if all of the, mm-hmm. the solutions you're talking about are implemented in whole, you would theoretically have a... I have a sharing, a full sharing city you know, a city run by people for the people. Everybody would be having their basic needs met? Yes, exactly. That's, that's the idea. And yeah, so it's here. It just needs to be pulled together. You know, we've got 133 case studies and model policies. You know, yeah, we talk about green taxi. There's housing, food, transportation. There's 11 chapters. There's four of the core. We have one uh, chapter on jobs. It really just illustrates the power to do what we need to do to address the key problems like inequality and climate change and unraveling of the social you know, contract and fabric that we don't have to wait for a solution to come to us, that the solutions are here and we can act today on them. And I think that's super important in the kind of times we live right now. Well, Neil, I just really want to appreciate you and the team at Shareable for doing this. And, you know, likewise, we're so delighted to have you with us today on Next Economy Now, because this is exactly our point, is that we have the solutions in present, in existence, uh, documented, but we don't have them in whole. 
Right. Right. So we can't look at, oh, certain city and see it all functioning well, but we can look at each splinter, so to speak, and somewhere on the world, somebody's doing it beautifully or a group of people are doing it beautifully in a way that benefits the community that's building biodiversity, benefiting the environments, benefiting the economy, but we don't have it in wholeness. So this, I, I really want to appreciate you and your team for <laughs> putting this volume together. Yeah. And now what, you know, what, we just need to get people to read it and yeah, that's a great question. What's, um, what's your, what's, do you have a, a call to action or? Yes. Step one, read the book and step two, create a transition plan drawn from material on the book and shareable can help with that. We're going to launch a campaign as a way to engage people and help communities and individuals, you know, go down this track. How would that compare or contrast to our friends at the Transition Network, right? Because that's... I think, it's, I think it's very similar, you know? Yeah. I, I think they do an awesome job. And, and they, like, over the years have really shifted to new economy thinking, and, and which is, I think, uh, really inspiring and dead on. And I think we need many different approaches. And, you know, they have a certain history and uh, a certain set of biases. And, and we're coming out from a, a different uh, perspective as well. And I think we can play well together and head in the same direction. Right. We need, we need more people. It's a, it's, a, it's a plurality of solutions, right? Rather than Everybody has to buy the shareable book and follow that as the manual. That's just an option. Exactly. And, you know, I make a point in the introduction I wrote for the book of saying, like, we don't need any more orthodoxies. The commons definitely needs to rise in its prominence in terms of a solution we need to consider. It needs to become mainstream. But we don't want to repeat the mistake of neoliberalism, which posited that there is no alternative. Um, you know, we imagine a kind of heterodox economy that there are synergy between the different ways to create value between the, the market, between government and the commons. And I believe for the commons to work, government has to be strong and also the, the market has to have integrity, right? And serve the common good and not be exploitative. Neil, can you tell me what you mean by the commons and, and why is that important? Yeah, the commons, okay, just a quick definition. There, there's three things in a commons. There's a, a common pool asset, the thing to share, and that can be a forest, it can be a business, it could be software. The second thing is a community of users. And then the third, and maybe the most important thing, and the thing that people often leave out and forget, is that there's a governance process that controls how the resource is accessed, how it's maintained, and it's a governance process that can evolve, and that is also culturally consistent with the group, with the, with the users. And it's, uh, why it's important is that often, you know, the the one sentence sort of summary of Nobel laureate, um, you know, Eleanor Ostrom's work on the commons is that often this approach to managing resources is more effective than the state or the market. So it works. She took this up even further and kind of adapted it to addressing climate change. And she made the argument on a, a paper she wrote just before she died that a, a commons-based approach, a kind of distributed approach driven locally uh, a polycentric approach, you would say, could be more effective than the attempts at aligning everyone at a global level, which obviously, you know, is not working in some very important ways, right? So people need to act. She was saying people can act in their local community at the city and regional level, and an aggregate could have more impact and act faster. Hmm. So that would imply that potentially there's some type of decentralized intelligence a, 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 an intelligent principle that's, that's organizing all life simultaneously and can't necessarily be commanded and controlled from a single viewpoint or perspective? Yeah, the, the, the thing about the commons is it's, a, it's a, a flexible construct 
and you could even say it's a it's a kind of archetype because it's it's a, it's an ancient you know uh, sort of method and technology for human beings to cooperate and manage their resources for the long term for centuries and even thousands of years right and it's adaptable people can take that construct and use it in a way that's consistent with their mores with their culture with their values that's kind of like this is really you know sort of painting with a broad brush here but that's how Ostrom saw it is that the local adoption of that paradigm and you know cities working together could move us faster to a solution to climate change. Just for listeners, right? We're having a podcast now. What, what elements <laughs> of commons are in play? Just in, you know, in somebody listening to this recording. Yeah, like what kind, what kind of commons? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's, um, well, the book has a lot of examples, but I'll, I'll throw some out there. Yeah. One of the most interesting examples is in Bologna, they started a project, they, they passed a new regulation for the care and, and regeneration of the urban commons, and also put together a kind of process for this to work. And it started when there were some women in a square, they wanted to have some benches in the square, and they wanted to put them in, they were willing to pay for it, right? And they went to the city and said, how do we do this? We'd like to donate some benches to our park to their piazza, you know, and no one had an answer. You know, they were sent around the bureaucratic maze and there's no solution. And so uh, what they decided to do is create a solution where residents can contribute to actual city building, very tangible, painting things, taking care of schools, running schools, putting in park benches, cleaning public space. And they, through a mechanism called collaboration packs, they work with the city to decide the scope of the project. They agree on it, and then they become one of hundreds of collaboration packs that the city forms with its residents to take care of the city, right? Mm. And the importance of this is it sort of addresses a lacuna in the a whole, a missing link or a missing space in administrative law where residents can't contribute to their community, right? Administrative law for cities is written in a way that see residents as subjects, not actors, that they receive services, they can deliver services or contribute actively. And so I think this is like a very good illustration of the urban commons and what's possible. Neil, if you could design a particular intervention that would kind of make a leap forward, what would it be? Could you pick one? Or wow, yeah. Say, no, that's, that's the wrong question to ask. <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the, I mean, I used to be a kind of like, lover of silver bullets and now I'm old <laughs> and, and wizened, I guess. It just goes back to this, this idea that you need an ecosystem and, you, and, it, and then it, it, it develops slowly. You have to build its iterative process, right? And, and maybe that's the intervention is, is like- Patience. Is, is, <laughs> giving is, people patience. <laughs> giving people patience. Um, or there's a different conception or experience of time in civil society than the market. You can't judge civic processes by market time, right? So you have to, and the, and, and the point is completely different. In, in the civic arena, the deliberation is the, is the product. The, the end is important, but I think the deliberation and what is built from that is much more important. And when you start to see the economy and government as a process of people solving problems together, flexing their collaborative muscles, becoming a citizenry, becoming a public, that this is the best investment that you can make, right? That result is what pays dividends over centuries and even longer. Um, you know, the example of, of, of uh, the Neil Romano region, you know, comes to mind. 
you know, back in the 12th century, the first um, university in the uh, Western world. It was a cooperative. In the Middle Ages, it was an independent city-state. And then recently now, you have this cooperative sector. 30% of the economy is cooperative. This ethic has been built and has served the, that region and the people that bring it alive so well. And this is what we need to really focus on. We need to build civic culture that gives us all of those positive externalities. So more process as outcome rather than the single fix that puts this into motion. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I see this pattern over and over again on on shareable is like you see these virtuous cooperative circles, right? So it's like this village in in Seoul. It's an urban village, Sung Misan urban village, right? And they started off, uh, you know, 10 or so years ago protesting some development nearby and then they decide, oh, let's do a co-op childcare. Let's do a cooperative school. Let's start a cooperative green product store. Let's start a bunch of different clubs. Let's do music festivals and theatrical productions and regular community celebrations, right? And, you know, 10 or so years later, you have a completely transformed community, operates in a completely different way and is very enriching for citizens and the way of life is one in which it supports the development of human beings and of a community and i think that's the really you know important message that these positive upward spirals are possible you just got to take it step by step put in the supportive institutions in a decade or two decades time maybe longer then you're going to get your transformation Mm. thanks for sharing that story it reminds me of the to me it follows a parallel of your personal life becoming really robust and engaged. And that's, that's a pattern I see, you know, tracking these solutions as they're more abundant than, than we ever thought possible. Absolutely. You know, and it's like in this, this cooperative school, like in this urban village in, in, in Seoul, they have a real emphasis on peer learning. So they bring in the elders to teach carpentry and photography and pottery and, and also accounting and how to run a business. And, and like, it's so rich, you know, and, and that's, when I read about and research and, you know, show these stories, like I, I've been doing this since 2009, you know, and, and it's like, I never get tired of these stories. I never get, I, I read them and, you know, I sometimes I cry because I'm like, yes, that's it. That's it. That's what we need more of this, you know, and I want more of this for me. I want more of this for you, you know, and that's what really drives me and, and also shareable. So Neil, how can our listeners help? What, what do you need at, at shareable? I would say go on the site, Sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. We will have an announcement about our campaign and our book release, so you can get that when it comes out. We'll have a free version, a PDF version. You can get e-reader versions and a print copy for paying some X price, which we haven't decided yet. So that's the place to start. Yeah, go to the website, shareable.net. Sign up for our newsletter. There's a box at the bottom of the homepage. You could, you could also find us at shareable on Twitter and also facebook.com slash shareable on Facebook. And I'll, I'll go ahead and give a plug. A shareable newsletter is one of the best newsletters, one of the few I actually read <laughs> because I always see something juicy and good and new in there. So I really appreciate you guys for putting out the work. Thank you, Sean. And, and the, the appreciation is, is, uh, is mutual. I really love a lift economy and what you guys done. And I've known you guys for years and watched your careers blossom and go in this direction. And I'm very inspired by you. Thanks, Neil. Well, any, any yeah. final words for, for our listeners? Let's, let's try to create a world where we can all become fabulous human beings and live in incredible communities. That's what, let's do it. That's my, that's my message. We can do it. Yeah. Yes. 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 This is real. <laughs> awesome. 
Well, thanks so much, Neil. We look forward to continuing to build this reality with you. Likewise. Thanks, Sean. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.